Uh, I didn't want to be drunk in public. <laughs> I wanted to be drunk in the bar. <laughs> they pulled me into public. <laughs> well, now, son, you, you're just so drunk, you don't know where you're walking. Welcome to tonight's special episode of The Naked Apple and the very first episode of our Slices of History. All the slices. Uh, well, one slice. Well, a slice. A, a slice of a, history. More small, of a, more of a small edible, mostly edible slice of the Big Apple of History. We have at least <clears throat> two hours of research going into this. And five hours of prep. <laughs> At least two hours of research, meaning I spent like two whole days looking at stuff. At least. At least. Uh, and that's after having already known a little bit about the story beforehand. So <clears throat> we want to try to get it right. This is going to be fun. Uh, anyway, we are your hosts. I am Mike Anderson. I am Trevor Christensen. And tonight... We're going to be covering a rather fun moment in history uh, from our good friends in Tennessee. Uh, this is the Battle of Athens. Ah, uh, yes, Athens. The Athenians weren't really great friends with the uh, <coughs> with uh, <coughs> the other Greeks, and uh, that's a great uh, different great different. different uh, no, his, no, no, different, different, the, different Athens, different Athens. This is Ath- Athens, Tennessee. This, like I said, our friends in. Tennessee. Tennessee wasn't Ten- one of the provinces of Greece. No, 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 no. It's one of the states of America. The used to be United. Oh, ones. oh, oh! You mean McMinn County? Ah, Athens. Yes, ah, yes. Why McMinn, did you just say so? McMinn County, place? Athens, Tennessee. Ah, <sighs> <sighs> that was right, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, in the middle of his forehead. It's <laughs> when I say right in my glasses, it's not exactly my forehead, but you know. Now your eyes are high. Anyway. <clears throat> but I haven't done anything. <laughs> uh, it's not what the uh, bloodshot says. Anyway. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> so uh, I want to, to begin our, our story tonight with a, uh, a quote um, from a, uh, a sitting judge. And uh, I love this quote. And this quote is, uh, The Second Amendment is a doomsday provision, one designed for those exceptionally rare circumstances where all other rights have failed, where the government refuses to stand for re-election and silences those who protest, where courts have lost the courage to oppose or can find no one to enforce their decrees. However improbable these contingencies may seem today, Facing them unprepared is a mistake a free people get to make only once. Foreshadow, foreshadow, foreshadow. And that was uh, Judge Alex Kaczynski in his descent to the Ninth Circuit's denial of review in the Silvera versus Lockyer case. 
Mm. And uh, as uh, Trevor was whispering over there, it is very much foreshadowing because the story that we're going to cover tonight uh, has a lot of political intrigue and insurrection that uh, I, I actually find... <sighs> refreshing isn't the right word, but, uh, you know, it's... Uh, it's very interesting, the, uh, to say the, the least. The resolution was refreshing, maybe? Yes, exactly. Resolution the resolution was refreshing. There you go. Yeah. So, uh, for those of you that live in a, a big city or suburb, or have never lived without a cell phone readily accessible, I'm looking at most of uh, the millennials out there. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be hard to imagine the history we're going to be painting for you tonight. So McMinn County, Tennessee in the early 1940s was anything but modern. The people of the county worked their fields, went to church, read their newspaper, spent time with their neighbor talking about their land, God, family, and politics. Can you remember the last time you actually sat down and had a conversation with somebody about any of those things? Yes. Like in person? Yeah. Oh, well, you don't count because we do it every week. Oh. <laughs> oh. No, most other people don't have those conversations in person anymore. It's all in your little digital gizmos and things. Yay. But uh, the people of McMinn didn't have that luxury. Most of them didn't even have electricity yet. And the nearest big cities, which were some 50 plus miles away, ha hadn't even begun their expansions into modern metropolis centers. Um, so life was slow and that was the way that most people liked it. So you're saying people weren't exactly walking in Memphis quite yet. No, not, not quite yet. I mean, Memphis was, was by far and away much bigger. And in fact, we're about to go there, um, because to give some background, uh, to the, the setting of these tensions and events that are coming up, we got to go back and zoom out a little bit. Marty, so, we must go back. We, we must go back. <laughs> back to the future. Past. Past. Back to the past. The, the past future. Pa the f <laughs> Carry on. Anyway. <laughs> uh, so to start this off, we need to go back and talk about a very specific man. His name was Edward Hull Boss Crump. He was a Tennessee Democrat born in Mississippi in 1874. He became a prominent politician and began to build a political empire starting in the early 1900s. Uh, starting out as a delegate for the Tennessee Democratic State Convention in 1902 and 1904, Boss Crump was named to the Municipal Board of Public Works in 1905 and then was elected as the Commissioner of Fire and Police in 1907 one of three commissioners responsible for governing the entire city of Memphis. In 1910, he ran and was elected to the office of mayor, where he began to build a political machine that would eventually give him influence over his whole state and even influence all the way into Washington, D.C. What? <laughs> yeah, right? So, and, and when we're talking about a political machine here, this isn't just... Like he has a group of politicians around him that they all vote the same way and do the same things. Right. He's got some printing press in the back that's just pumping out. <laughs> right. Oh, not an actual not, machine. Not an actual machine. No. Oh. No. So when we're talking about a political machine, what Crump did during this time was 
to say the least, questionably ethical. And by that, I mean entirely unethical. <laughs> oh. Yeah, right. So so what, what he ended up doing was basically, uh, I, I don't want to use the term buying votes, but that's pretty much what it was. He he was pandering to to specific groups um, to win their vote so that he could essentially control whatever he wanted. So he wasn't just getting them to vote for him. He was going out and telling them they needed to vote for certain people, essentially. Oh. And they would do certain things for these different groups so that the groups would continue to vote for them, but then they would turn around and do all kinds of other stuff on the side. That was completely corrupt. It's a good thing nothing. It's a good thing this was fixed in the past, and so nothing like that happens today. Yeah, it's right. Good thing. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, wishful thinking. So Crump, <laughs> while he he was only mayor from 1910 to 1915, because he was ousted by the state government for failing to enforce prohibition laws. Which I, I mean, you you can go back and forth about whether or not prohibition laws should have existed in the first place and and all that stuff. But the fact of the matter was that prohibition was a thing at the time, and it was a thing that was put out by the states, and the mayors, some of them, just refused to enforce it at all. And so uh, during this time, uh, some of the states, especially uh, obviously Tennessee, put forth what they called the uh, ouster laws, which was oh. a, a set of rulings that were specifically meant to remove sitting mayors and officials that were refusing to uh, enforce these prohibition laws. And the one in Tennessee was actually designed with Boss Crump in mind. Oh, because nice. <laughs> because Crump was going out and doing a lot of things that the state of Tennessee really didn't like. He was building this, this machine. He was participating in all kinds of corruption. Uh, and he was doing just all kinds of things that, that the people of Tennessee didn't like. He is the reason why we don't have nice things. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> he, he is the reason we don't have nice things. You know that one so, guy at the company that makes you have to sit through that safety meeting? He's that guy. Every week. <laughs> <laughs> at least once a week and he, he was so he, he built this machine he started doing all these things so the the other elected officials in Tennessee go we got to get this guy out because he's not playing by the rules he's doing all these things his own way whatever yada yada so they put forth the uh, ouster laws uh, actually I don't I, they weren't laws I can't remember exactly what they were called uh, anyway, they, they put forward these things to remove Crump from power. But it doesn't really work because he'd already established the beginnings of his machine. So even though he was ousted in 1915, he effectively handpicked the officials for Shelby County, which was Memphis, Tennessee, and the surrounding area, and eventually all of Tennessee until about 1954 when he passed away. So when he left office in 1915 he had installed a official in the seat of the mayor that he thought would be a puppet 
essentially, uh, that he could, you know, just pull around wherever he wanted. He got asked it, so he decided to become a puppeteer. Right, exactly. So, so he stepped back and became the man behind the curtain. And uh, he was gravely disappointed in, in the first two or three people that ended up taking the mayor seat, um, that he ended up giving the mayor seat, I should say. He thought he had a wooden puppet, but turns out they were real boys after all. <laughs> and, and in fact, <laughs> it, it took him several tries and even a failed attempt at abolishing the position of mayor entirely before he found someone to his liking for the position. And uh, during this time, he was continuing the more widespread work of establishing his political influence across the state. So in 1916, he ran for and was elected as the county trustee where he was able to reform voter registration and establish a technique that would expand his influence for the next 30 years. Yay. So he goes, he goes from being mayor and building this, this government machine to put whoever he wants in these different offices. <clears throat> and then he, he goes on to into the county as a county trustee where he's able to reform voter registration. So essentially he got to pick and choose who was allowed to vote in the county in Shelby. <laughs> yeah, I don't like you because you don't like me. So, so you don't vote. And and during his time as mayor, he was like I, I said, he was he was buying these uh, different groups and some of the different groups that he, he ended up buying was actually the firemen and police force of in Shelby County. Um, How would someone do something like that? <laughs> well, he, he did it by, and, and this is the funny thing is, is when you start picking apart the things that he did on the surface, they look like really good things <laughs> because he, he went into office as mayor on the promise that he would improve the fire department and the, the police department that he would bring them into the modern day. And that, uh, by the time that he left office, that they would all have, you know, the, the new shiny new engines. trucks and the new cars and the, the new police cruisers and, you know, all of these different things that he would update their departments. And he did that. He, he came into office and he sat down and he went through all these things. he, bolstered county funding. Uh, he even built them uh, inspiring public buildings is, <laughs> is what everything I read called it, uh, that were in their honor. And so then he gets ousted out of office, runs and becomes county trustee, and essentially he begins using the fire department and the police department to bring in voters to the polls to swing votes his way. So he takes police officers and firefighters off duty and has them go and drive their brand new nice vehicles that he had updated out to pick up voters and take them to register and take them to the polls and take them to these different places so that they could vote for the people that Crump wanted them to vote for. What a nice guy. Uh, and so in that first year, the, the, the year 1916, when he ran for county trustee, it is estimated that this machine that he built, this, this way that he had come up with to, to get more voters, produced 25,000 extra votes in his county. Now, now, to put this in perspective, in the United States today, for president of the United States... 
only about 25% of voting age people show up to vote. 25 to 30%. So in a county, 25,000 people, it's going to make a little bit of a difference. Especially when we get to the stats later that talk about the percentage of people that left McMinn County during World War II. And so it's around, what was it, like three to 5,000 people. I can't remember the exact number right now. I've got it written down here somewhere. I'll find it later when we get to that stat. (laughs) But it was about 10% of the entire county, McMinn. Yep. This is 25,000 extra votes. So he got 90% you, of the county to show up. And yeah, exactly. You you're talking he 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 pulled like 90% of a county in to vote using this method. So from 1917 to 1923, um so that's the next the following year, he became the county treasurer, which gave him the salary and access he needed to control things the way he really wanted to. What so, kind of access, I wonder? Uh, being you know, the treasurer of the county. Right. <laughs> so so he has all of this new influence, all of this access to money and funding and uh, the ability to, to direct funds and different things like that in this county. And so he then goes and establishes an insurance company. Well, that's nice. People need yeah. insurance. Oh, yeah. People need insurance. They need to be insured, especially if they're going to do government work. So he builds Wait, the Crump Insurance Company, and he ran it from his Memphis office in uh, a bank there on the sixth floor and required that anyone in government or wanting business with Memphis, Tennessee had to get insurance with his company. Mm. So they, they weren't just allowed to come in and work or come in and get a job. They had to be insured with the Crump Insurance Company. Well, to be clear, he didn't require them per se. No, that's true. He advised. being, Being the treasurer and all, you know, I mean, you might not get the things you need if you don't have insurance. Right. You probably want to get this insurance. Right. So, he... He goes on this, I mean, it's years long. He, he's just building power, building political sway. Uh, using his influence, he accrued power and loyal group of voters consisting of old-time Democrats, various social and civic groups, and African Americans, to whom he promised paved roads and a new city park in their neighborhoods to secure their votes. Where have I heard that before? Huh. It's almost like they... Just play the same old tune all the time, isn't it? Rommel. <laughs> Rommel. <laughs> so, uh, he goes through all this and eventually decides, you know, the state's not enough for me. And so he runs for Congress. And he wins. Of course. Him and, of course, uh, his senator, Kenneth McKellar, now, when you say his plays. senator, uh, I mean, I mean his like possessive, like he owned Kenneth McKellar. Oh, uh, so he wasn't a real boy yet. No, he wasn't a real boy. He <laughs> had there were strings all over him. So he goes into to Congress for the, you know one term, and 
decides he doesn't really like it because he's not the head honcho there like he is in Tennessee. No, he doesn't have the tenure. Doesn't? Yeah, exactly. Uh, he's he's not the uh, the the royalty. Yeah that he likes being. So he decides to just install a puppet there too and moves himself back <laughs> to Tennessee and uh, sits in his lovely little castle in Memphis. And uh, that's where we come back <clears throat> to the beginnings of our story, the Battle of Athens. Whoa. So as Boss Crump's machine expands across the state, it finds its way to McMinn County, Tennessee, in the guise of Paul Cantrell. Uh, so Cantrell <laughs> was the Democrat candidate for McMinn County Sheriff. And he tied his campaign for sheriff closely to that of Franklin D. Roosevelt. Ah, Franklin D. <clears throat> So, uh, <laughs> writing FDR's success and possibly committing a little fraud, <laughs> allegedly swapping ballot boxes in what later became known as the vote grab in 1936, <laughs> Contrell secured the position of sheriff and wasted no time in establishing his own brand of heavy-handed corruption in the county. So, 1936... We get this new Democratic sheriff in town, and things immediately go to pot. <clears throat> oh, it didn't turn into Mayberry? Oh, no, 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 no. Oh. Uh, no. Oh, I miss was... Mayberry. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> the, the country references. Oh, this, I've, I've this got is more. Great. This is great. This could this... be good. You've got a little web page up over there, don't, don't I you? I have you are. the Battle of Athens document pulled up oh, in front of my is that, face. Is that what you're reading? And uh -huh. the U.S. Constitution, and if Hamilton is copyrighted. Oh, well, that's good to know. <laughs> Those are my tabs. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting back to the story. <clears throat> Following his election, Contral and his deputies... I've, I've said that name like three different ways now. Contral, Cantrell. Cantrell, Contral, whatever. C-A-N-T-R-E-L-L. Cantrell. Anyway, <clears throat> that's probably how it was pronounced, being from the South. <laughs> Cantrell. Cantrell. Uh, so Cantrell and his deputies established themselves as barely more than thugs, exploiting loose Tennessee laws to amass wealth and power in the county and control the politics of the area. So him and his men, when he gets put in office... They are receiving a fee for every person that they manage to pass through their jail. So with that, what I'm referring to is they have to arrest the person for something, uh -huh. book them into the jail, and right. then release them. Then release. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, and then grab them again. Right. <laughs> the more human transactions that they make like this, the more they get paid. Um. And that all, all that's required for them to get paid is to get a voucher signed by the sheriff and take it to uh, the local county court. And then they get paid for that booking. But there's no quotas. No, no quotas. <laughs> none. That's not a thing. <laughs> so, you know, he, he has these, these deputies going out and doing this, and the corruption is just everywhere. Spreads all through the county. Uh, 
to the point where deputies are boarding buses that are passing through town. Like not even like buses locally or, or people like going to the bar and then leaving in a bus. Your Greyhound bus. Yeah, literally your Greyhound bus that is just passing through town, going somewhere else. They are boarding these buses and arresting passengers on the bus and charging them with drunkenness, even though, well, I mean, like whether they're guilty or not, Tennessee is a dry state, so. Oh, yeah, of course it's a dry state. Not in McMinn County. <laughs> but it, Whiskey. It, it gets ridiculous because they're charging them, you know, with drunkenness. They're hauling them off to jail and fining them up to $16.50. Oh, $16.50. So that would be the equivalent of about $300 today. Oh, that's kind of bad. Yeah, for doing nothing more than falling asleep on a bus. So so don't ride the bus that drives it. Yeah, night. and and they would arrest as many as 115 people in a weekend. Oh. So over the span of 10 years while Control was sheriff at uh in Athens, they accrued around $300,000, which in today's money is somewhere between 4.2 and 5.6 million dollars in nothing but fines. In nothing but uh, grabbing people off of a bus yeah. fines. Yeah. Like completely just some stand up frivolous arrests and fines. 4.2 to 5.6 million dollars. Some stand up officers of the law there. So, and, and that's not the worst part, because while the fines were profitable, they required a certain amount of record keeping. Ah, those darn and records. And you know how tedious paperwork is. Sign and, this, submit You know, that. once you sign a paper, it goes in the system, and it's really easy for somebody to go back and find it. So, there are far more lucrative and less dangerous ways to collect money when you're a corrupt cop. Right? Uh, yeah, like maybe just not be a corrupt cop. Well, but that doesn't make you money. Oh. And in this town, it'd probably get you shot. <laughs> By the corrupt cops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what they start doing is uh, shaking down and taking kickbacks from roadhouses that they allowed to openly operate. So, uh, Trevor, can you tell me what a roadhouse is? Um, well, there's a roadhouse just down the road. <laughs> um, like, like Texas roadhouse? Texas roadhouse, Is yeah. that, is that what you're, it's, uh, uh, it's the more successful version of the Tennessee roadhouse. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> more successful. <laughs> That's why you don't see Tennessee roadhouse everywhere. You see Texas roadhouse. Yeah. No, so, roadhouses were the, uh, that's where you go to get a little, uh, little moonshine and mm -hmm. yeah, so, maybe a woman or two and play some cards. Right, so they were they were, you know, little inns and things like that that had yeah, nightclubs and liquor in them, which at this time was extremely illegal and extremely so, lucrative, very, very lucrative. So they aren't supposed to be operating in the state of Tennessee, but in McMinn County, uh, the corrupt deputies and corrupt sheriff were just letting them run openly, and. Uh, 
so they'd, they'd go into these roadhouses and, and they'd find, uh, especially if they could find a cooperative owner of one of these, they would go in and, and the owner would point out his more influential patrons. So, you know, the mayor is sitting over there. Don't mess with him. Uh, the, the county clerk is over there and, uh, oh, there's, there's a, a man from, from Memphis over there in the nice bowler hat and. We call him boss, but uh, yeah, don't mess with those those guys. But everybody else in here is free game. So they would they would go in and they would get these uh, lists of people that they couldn't mess with, and then they would shake down everybody else in the club huh. for for money. We're considered the great honor, yeah, right? <laughs> so it, during this time, it's it's prohibition in the the whole country, basically. If I remember right, it was the whole country, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, uh, it was a federal thing. But in McMinn County, prostitution, gambling, alcohol was all so common that throughout Tennessee, Athens was known for being wide open. <laughs> and Contral, the sheriff, was living like a king. Mm. Um, so there's a, a book written by a man named Chris DeRose, uh, the book is called The Fighting Bunch, The Battle of Athens and How World War II Veterans Won the Only Successful Armed Rebellion Since the Revolution. Spoiler. Spoiler! <laughs> it's all in the title. Um, but in his book, he details uh, some things about control that are kind of... Eh? Eh? <laughs> so... The sheriff drew salaries of nearly $60,000 per year over his first six years. So that would have been worth well over $1 million in today's money. So a little bit of cash. So I don't know about you, but I don't know that I've ever met a sheriff that made that much money. Uh, as being a sheriff? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. right. Yeah. And this was his actual salary. This was this right. wasn't his illegal right. gatherings. Paid. This was what he was paid every year by the county. And then um, to, to to make matters worse, he gets appointed as the superintendent of the county workhouse for an additional salary of over two thousand dollars per year, bringing his total to you know around sixty two grand a year. Little, little over that, right? And I mean, that's, it's about what, you know, there's, there's, it's not a bad, bad living now. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll, I'll take it. Um, but there's, there's a, there's a, a hitch right here. There's, there's a little hook. There's always a catch. The, there's a little, little catch, a little, little snag on that. And it, it's that uh, McMinn County did not have a workhouse. So uh, I assume that would make it superintending pretty easy. Uh, so uh, so you had to supervise something that didn't that exist. doesn't exist. Yeah, pretty pretty simple to supervise something that doesn't exist, right? Uh, but uh, interesting, you know, illegal casinos, speakeasies, and whorehouses paid thousands of dollars per month in protection money. Dozens of county employees were listed on the payrolls for the sole purpose of providing cover for a vast money laundering operation. When the government doesn't get its money from taxes, someone else will. 
Right. The, the corruption here, though, like, you're laying everything out like this. And, and you keep in mind, like, you know, Boss Crump wasn't ever accused of anything like this egregious. But he's the one that helped these people get in power. They were accomplishing his goals. He was an accomplice to everything, but was guilty of nothing. Exactly. <laughs> it's ridiculous. But anyway, so this is this is how Contrell's 10-year reign as the king of McMinn County began. So in subsequent elections, ballot boxes were collected from the precincts, and the results were counted in secret at McMinn County Jail in Athens, as opposed to out in the open by a third neutral party, the way they're supposed to be. Wait, so the elections were fraudulent? Uh-huh. Yeah, pretty much all of them. But I thought that never happened. Oh, no, it happens all the time. Oh. Um, and, like, and they obviously had, like, no fear of recourse because they were straight up ejecting opposition poll watchers from the precinct houses and even arresting them <laughs> at this time for for uh, being troublemakers. Uh, you know, so... So for, for reference, um, we're recording this on October 6, 2020. Yes. If you listen to this at all past today, <laughs> five years from now, <laughs> ten years from now, if it still exists... This is probably the most documented case of election frauds. Z, frauds. Z, plural. Multiple elections. Fraudulent. That we have in the United States, and almost nobody knows anything about it. And this is, so the only, and this is the really sad thing about this story, is the only cases of election fraud that were actually like fully exposed and dealt with because of this event are the elections in McMinn County for the course of 46 years. Boss Crump was setting up and stealing elections across the country. Right. And of all of his schemes of all the things that he did, this is the only portion of his machine and his corruption that was ever stopped. Yep. Wouldn't be surprised if they're still going on today. Probably. So it, it just keeps going. So in 1940, uh, George Woods, a plump and affable Etowah crony of Contral, was elected to state legislature. So you have George Woods, who's working for the sheriff of McMinn County, Contral, uh-huh. who's working for Crump at this point. Uh-huh. And Woods is elected to the state legislature. So he promptly introduces an act to redistrict McMinn County. Well, why would someone want to do that? Well, well, let me tell you, Trevor. Oh, thank you. It's because it <laughs> reduced the number of voting precincts from 23 to 12. Oh, so it made it easier to actually count everything. Yeah, so so they, they just combined a bunch of, like, you know, eight or nine states into five. Oh, wait. No, that's what the Democrats are trying to do now. Damn it. Um, 
It, it just it just took twenty three voting voting precincts and and turned them into twelve, cutting down the number of justices of the peace from seventeen or from fourteen to seven. Oh, so, and then it gets better. So of these seven uh-huh. that are remaining, four of them were openly control men. Oh, so just the majority. Yeah, yeah. So, so what they did is they, they combined all of these, these precincts and got rid of all of the judges that were Republican or opposed to Sheriff Control in any way, except for, like, three of them. You can't get rid of all of them. That'll yeah, be you know, that would be suspicious, right? But if you get rid of most so, of them. So they get rid of most of them. <laughs> so then you have a four... Three split for the entire state with four of them in the pocket of controlling Crump. Oh. So there's there's that. So when Governor Prentice Cooper signed Wood's bill into law on February 15th, 1941, effective Republican opposition died in McMinn County. Oh. There was there was no longer any opposition to their machinations at oh, all. Well then. So the McMinn County court though was still dominated by Republicans. And so they directed the county to purchase voting machines thinking that a machine will stop voter fraud. Can't stuff a box if there's no box to stuff. Right. Uh, but that didn't really work because Control uh, countered by having Woods get a bill passed in Nashville abolishing the court and selling machines to save the county money. <laughs> not not just uh, let's get rid of the judges. There's just no court. There's Yeah, so um, we no longer need you to serve the community anymore, so bye. <laughs> Not above the law. I am the law. <laughs> right? You should have the soundboard tonight. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we should have thought that through beforehand. Yeah. But it, it gets to the point where um, a common refrain among the townsfolk started becoming just wait till the boys come home. Because at this point... They're right in the middle of World War II. War is raging across the world. As 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 World War II sets in, though, Control himself steps down as the sheriff and replaces himself with uh, one of his men, Pat Mansfield. Patty. And Control decides to run for Tennessee Senate, Naturally. which he wins because how? Crump. Oh wait, we went through all that. Yes, already. we've been we've been through this many many times. <laughs> but it just gets so bad with these two sheriffs that the people they they just can't stand it. So they start petitioning the Department of Justice for relief, uh, knowing that local and state officials wouldn't take any action against the machine. A hardware store owner wrote Attorney General Francis Biddle, imploring. The good people of this county are sacrificing for the cause of America's freedom, but have lost their freedom at home. Both parties have lost the freedom of the ballot box. A dictatorship has been set up. 
The county treasury is being raided at the expense of the taxpayers, and the good people of this county would like to sell their property and move away. Your department is our last line of defense. Please, for God's sake, come to the rescue of a helpless people. A minister also wrote to Biddle of a ruthless exploitation at the hands of unscrupulous men who sacrifice public liberties for the sake of private gain. Nothing has been considered too low if it will enable them to perpetuate themselves in office. Decent citizens feared to bring their wives to the polls and often felt it unwise to cast their own ballots. It is not possible for a letter to contain information concerning all the subversive and unscrupulous activities that have taken place in this county. So, you know, there was a little bit of corruption. Some, some people were upset. Some, there was, yeah, some, some, some people that were mildly... Um, mildly upset. Mildly upset, uh, mildly inconvenienced by some things. <laughs> It's a mild inconvenience. Mild. It's mostly peaceful. It's mostly peaceful. Mostly peaceful, it's but mostly mildly peaceful inconvenient. <laughs> so, the Department of Justice compiles a report observing that the alleged violations in McMinn County were the worst ever brought to the attention of the Department of Justice. Despite overwhelming evidence and continuing petitions, the feds took no action. Oh, but but there is evidence. Well, yes, but they took no action. But but they they have Joe Biden on. I mean, they have. <laughs> well, you know, it's, they took a little bit of action. Oh, okay, a little bit, a little but bit. not for a while. Oh, so a separate ouster lawsuit against McMinn election commissioners was finally tried by the assistant attorney general. Largely due to the fact that the U.S. attorney and the two U.S. senators who had recommended him were believed to be associated with the machine. But this case was held before a judge who was also rumored to be a part of the organization. So the judge dismissed most of the charges and fined the men one penny for the charges that stuck. Oh. Well, I mean, adjusted for inflation, that's like uh, 10 cents. So, uh, meanwhile, the machine just hummed right along. And under the new supervision of Mansfield, things for the county actually got worse. Be oh, not oh, better. Worse. 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 Yeah, they got worse. Yeah. Out of the frying pan into the fire. Ah. Basically. So, the, the corruption escalates. The shakedowns worsen. It eventually gets to the point where the deputies and and people in Sheriff Mansfield's crew were deputizing random criminals on the street to help them do things that were illegal. Oh. Uh, one such instance being uh, near the end of September in 1944, a Navy CB was enjoying his first night of leave. He and another sailor went out for drinks and music. And DeRose describes the events that followed thusly. Ford asked to use the telephone in plain view. They told him they didn't have one. Ford got up to leave. His friend went with him. Deputy Minnis Wilburn thought they looked like easy marks. Servicemen always had money. He'd arrest them and pocket a nice fee. 
He deputized George Sperling and Clyde Davis, notorious criminals both, as officers of the law in order to assist him in making an arrest. They caught up with the sailors in the parking lot. Sperling clubbed Ford repeatedly over the head. Ford, stumbling, backed up, his hand raised in surrender. Don't move or I'll blow you in two, said Sperling. Ford didn't move. So Sperling shot him in the chest from 10 feet away. Oh. Ford staggered, struggling to stand, trying to comprehend what was happening to him. Earl Ford fell to the ground where he was left for 20 minutes. Ford was pronounced dead at Foree Hospital. Sheriff Mansfield defended the shooting to the newspaper. Wilburn undertook to subdue a bunch of disorderly sailors and others and deputized Sperling and others on the scene to help him. Mansfield claimed that they had pulled Ford off of Sperling's back and that Ford had charged Sperling with a knife. Why hadn't anyone else seen the knife? Wilburn claimed the knife was found under Ford's body. He did not explain how a knife held out in front of a man could wind up behind and under him when he was shot. <laughs> so he shot himself in the back of the head two times, dragged his dead body to the, <laughs> to the tree and hung himself. And hung himself. Uh, sounds vaguely familiar. Is that an Epstein case? Uh, W.O. Swindler, a cattleman from South Carolina, was traveling through town with his son and didn't know anyone involved. They were the first to come to Ford's aid. Neither saw any weapons anywhere near the body. A doctor who came outside the halfway court and attempted to save Ford's life saw no weapon. In fact, Ford was wearing a sailor's uniform with no pockets and had nowhere to conceal a knife. Hmm. All that uh, damning evidence. Right. And nothing. So it, it just gets worse and worse uh, but, like but, i i understand but this is a hopeful story it is it is eventually but you <laughs> eventually. have to you have to travel through the darkness to see the dawn my friend uh. <laughs> right <clears throat> so mcminn county deputies often walked into bars and announced that every patron was under arrest for public intoxication uh, i didn't want to be drunk in public <laughs> I wanted to be drunk in the bar. <laughs> they pulled me into public car. Well, now, son, you, you're just so drunk, you don't know where you're walking. See? <laughs> uh, and as, as uh, DeRose notes, uh, worse still were the siren bandits, policemen who targeted innocent motorists and tourists. These deputies pulled people over and outright robbed them. Like, and, and we're not talking about like we've seen in modern day where somebody will slap stickers on their car and go throw a siren light and stuff on. No, this was actual officers. Right. In the sheriff's department, pulling people over, taking all of their things. Right, so... So, so they pulled them over and they smell alcohol on them and no, 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 that, they just and, pulled them over and robbed them like and decided to search the car and uh, cite civil asset forfeiture to take all the money they have. Oh, wait, no, I, I don't think they even, uh, I, I, well, I mean, oh, 
you know, if you want to put it in modern le- legalese, yes, that's exactly what they did. Modern legalese. <laughs> but back then, there weren't even loopholes for them to do it legally. They just did it. robbed people. <laughs> because I can. <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. So, you know, these, these deputies, they, they are pulling people over, robbing them, and... All the while, the bootleggers, casino operators, and pimps were raking in piles of money, protected by the same officers. And McMinn County Jail in downtown Athens was a fortress. And it was oh. it was so bad that, like, average civilians wouldn't even walk in front of it. Oh, but I'm sure the inside was really nice because, you know, they're collecting all these fees and fines and getting lots of money for the state right. to upgrade their buildings. Well, DeRose actually described um, oh, so we're gonna, a little bit of this. Read so, about the so gold toilet then. He, he says uh, people would walk a block out of their way to avoid walking past lest they be arrested by a lazy deputy. Uh-huh. So the, the one, you know, fat donut eating guy that sits on the chair in front of the jail... Um, <laughs> You know, he would chase people down if they tripped in front of the jail and things and arrest them. So, literally, that's the next thing he says is, the sidewalk was cracked in front of the jail, and anyone who tripped was certain to see the inside on a charge of public drunkenness. So they literally would have, like, this, this deputy sitting in front of the jail waiting for somebody to trip so he could arrest them for being drunk. I just tripped. No, <laughs> no, no, tripped. no, no. Yeah, you no. tripped because you're drunk. So, so he continues on. Prisoners remembered its sickening stench, the air thick with flies, sleeping on uncovered mattresses, black with dirt, oh. filthy blankets, huge cobwebs, and peeling paint. But they were getting lots of money. Uh, yeah, yeah, for themselves. Oh. So the kitchen was a dirty, nauseating disgrace. Oh. The money not spent on the housing and feeding of prisoners went straight into the sheriff's pocket. So that's why. Oh, basically. So it was terrible. Yeah. Oh. So and it was actually like uh, part of this came out when Contral betrayed a member of his own, uh, his own little group and the man went to court and aired some of his dirty laundry. So in retaliation, the man's father was arrested, robbed, and an attempt was made on his brother-in-law's life, shot in broad daylight by a deputy. Oh, splendid. So. Yeah, that's, that's that's the kind of that's real nice. That's the kind of place we're we're talking about right. here. Some stand up people, and and this is particularly distressing when you understand the kind of people that were in McMinn County. Okay, so they're a unique bunch, really compared to the rest of the Tennessee. like compared to the rest of the United States. Oh, like so during the Civil War, this is Tennessee's deep in the middle of Confederacy territory. Yeah. Also, for reference, McMinn County is in the southwestern corner of Tennessee. If yes. I remember correctly. Yeah. Or southeastern. Uh, sorry. And and McMinn County sides with the Union. Oh. So so they're they're so they're not the anti-Confederacy. Southern, they are not the Southern they Democrats. Are, they are right. Yeah. <clears throat> so and and in 1898, they declared war on Spain. <laughs> McMinn County. I'm not talking about the U.S. I'm talking about McMinn County, Tennessee, declared war on Spain. 
two weeks before Washington got around to it. <laughs> they were just like, you know what? No, you're stopping. We're coming. They started mobilizing two weeks before the U.S. and the Spanish-American <laughs> Right? <laughs> so this begs the question, how? How did Contral and, and Mansfield, how did they have such undisputed control over a county noted for its independent and cantankerous spirit? <laughs> and, and this is where we get to the statistic that I talked about earlier. So the Second World War. As all of this is going down, as they're stealing the votes, as they're they're gaining more and more power, and especially as Mansfield comes into uh, the the sheriff's position, and things start to get so much worse, World War Two is going on, and three thousand five hundred and twenty six young men from Mansfield County are okay. drafted and go to world go to the war. They're they're gone, which is about 10% of McMinn's population. <laughs> so when, when he brought in 35,000 votes... 25,000 votes. 25,000 votes. Mm-hmm. He pretty much did get close to 90% of people to vote. Yeah, yeah. he's pretty freaking close to 90%. Which is impossible. Well, different counties, though. Mem- Memphis was in uh, Shelby, which has quite a bit larger... Valid. But still... 25,000 votes is a, a egregious lot. amount. So, but but this explains why McMinn was so easily overrun and overtaken with this is because they're missing most of their good fighting men. They're voting age young men. Those willing here. to fight. And so those that are left behind are the older and perhaps some of the more timid uh, citizens. And that probably contributed to uh, Contral's machine's growth by them remaining silent. Doing nothing is doing something. <sighs> Silence is violence, my friend. Wait. No. 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 No, it's not. No, it's not. Violence is violence. Violence is violence. <laughs> but as we get to the good part of the story, it all soon changed. As World War II came to an end in 1945. Hooray! Yay! So, one of the veterans, a man by the name of Bill White, whose name will come up several more times during this story, uh, recalled coming home from overseas with his mustering out pay in his pocket. He said, There were several beer joints and honky-tonks around Athens. We were pretty wild. We started having trouble with the law enforcement at that time because they started making it a habit of picking up GIs and finding them heavily for most anything. They were kind of making a racket out of it. After long, hard years of service, most of us were hardcore veterans of World War II. We were used to drinking our liquor and our beer without being molested. When these things happened, the GIs got madder. The more GIs they arrested, the more they beat up, the madder we got. That was a much better uh, accent. Ah, I thought so too. Yeah. <laughs> Stick with that one. Yeah, it's good. It's good. It's good. It's good. It fits. Yeah, it fits. So in 1946, as the election loomed, all of these veterans get together and determine that they had had enough. 
They decided to exercise one of the many rights that they had fought and many of them had died for. Determined to take the election, they established their own ticket and they put forward Knox Henry to run against Contrell, who was returning to once again run for sheriff after his small stint in the Senate. And they adopted the slogan, Your vote will be counted as cast. It's a small jab there to... uh, Little pokey poke. Little soft, soft right hook <clears throat> to uh, the fact that they were stealing the elections before. So they begin a long campaign against the corruption and fraud that had plagued their county. As the campaign progressed, it became apparent to several of the GIs that things wouldn't go off without a hitch. So our uh, friend we just talked about there, Bill White, he put out a call to his fellow uh, veterans, to his fellow GIs, said, listen. Do you think they're going to let you win this election? Those people been taking these elections for years with a bunch of armed thugs. If you never got the guts enough to stand up and fight fire with fire, you ain't going to win. And about 60 men answered his call, organizing a militia to observe the voting process and keep Contral and Mansfield from once again rigging the outcome as they armed themselves and prepared for what was to come. And that's how... The Fighting Bunch was born. The Fighting Bunch is, uh, obviously, it was the part of the title of the book that DeRose wrote, but the Fighting Bunch is, obviously, it's the name that the militia took on uh, of these veterans that decided they were going to handle (laughs) making sure that this election didn't go sideways like the last ones did. Almost as if they took some sort of oath. Yeah, right? To protect and defend. So, you know, as, as they're making these preparations, they're, they're doing all this stuff in secrecy. They're not letting anybody know. So they get their ticket together and they call it the, uh, ex servicemen's cleanup ticket for McMinn County. And, uh, another author by the name of C, uh, C. Stephen Byram noted the GI ticket was superior to the machines by any rules of logic comprised of men young and old, Democratic and Republican, city and country, all veterans, all battle-tested, and all highly thought of. So the local Republican Party resolved to officially endorse the veterans' ticket instead of running its own (laughs) candidates. Probably the best decision that any Republican group (laughs) has ever made in the history of this country. Right here, folks. Right here. (laughs) So, uh, that's a real humdinger. (laughs) Um, So, after seconding the motion in favor of the resolution, one party officially delivered, or one party official, delivered an excellent summation. We are involved in a conflict with desperate enemies who have sought to subject us to tyranny and oppression. We feel a deep sense of obligation and now seek in measure to repay. Young men who have fought against oppression abroad will continue that fight for honesty and decency at home. And so their campaign actually took off. They tried. They tried to do it right. The third party... They, and, and this is by far and away the most successful, uh, technically it's a third party run, even though they were endorsed by the Republicans, 
they came in as a third party. Oh, it yeah. was it was a mix of Democrats, Republicans, independents, all these different people in this county. And they get the Republican endorsement, but it's their ticket. Yes. It is their people. It's the GI ticket, I think, is what they end up yeah, calling it. Yeah, they end up calling it the GI ticket. So as the campaign continues and ads from both sides were seen and heard across radio and newspaper, calls of misconduct by the established Democrats were countered by trumpeting of historic accomplishments, arrests, and confessions of county deputies for transport of illegally imported alcohol. Mm. So, so, so you have one side trying to blame the other of what they themselves are doing and the other side pointing out what that side is actually doing. Yeah, right. And and these <laughs> all these allegations Where have I seen that before. And and this is this is what's really really funny. So the the actual the county deputies thing was real. Like they were caught, they had the liquor, they called it election whiskey. They admitted <laughs> having it and transporting it. They outright confessed to everything. But then Everything was denied and swept under the rug. And then they put out an ad countering with accusations that the GIs were stuffing ballot boxes. We, you, you may think you have won with your superior logic and reason. So, but we're going to accuse you it, of something that we also do. It just keeps getting worse and worse as the election comes up. So you have advertisements in the post-Athenian two days before the election that read as follows. Uh, the first one is from the GIs, <clears throat> and it says, These young men fought and won a war for good government. They know what it takes and what it means to have a clean government, and they are energetic enough, honest enough, and intelligent enough to give us good, clean government. Now, I want to point out that ad doesn't attack the other side at all. It is entirely, these are my... Here's what we stand yeah. for. Like, like these, these, these are my positives. These are the things that you should vote for me for. And so then a few pages later, you get this ad from the Democratic Party. Look at the facts. You will vote for the Democratic ticket. The campaign fight is as old as the hills. It is the story of the outs wanting back in. I didn't know the Jedi hand wave worked. <laughs> right. You will vote. You will Democratic vote ticket. for the Democratic ticket. <laughs> you will vote. If you don't vote for me, you ain't black. Wait. Wait. I don't see that in the thing it's, here, but that sounds so familiar. That sounds so familiar. Anyway, uh, so uh, election day approaches, and veterans from across the state start volunteering to come help watch the polls to ensure that everything is above board. Oh, right? so some third-party people to watch yeah, out. Yeah, you know, some, some people from around to come and watch the polls. And Yeah, so uh, Sheriff Mansfield announces, uh, it has come to my attention that certain elements intend to create a disturbance at and around the polls. In order to see that law and order is maintained, I will have several hundred deputies patrolling the county. Several hundred. He then hired these deputies from outside the county and some of them from outside of the state, <laughs> posting them armed in every single voting precinct. Uh, I'll see your influx of 
volunteers <clears throat> from around the state and raise you people from out of the state that I will give firearms to. I'll see your veterans from all over the place and raise you my criminals from everywhere. <laughs> Mine get guns. Careful. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so now we get to the, the really good part. You know what day it is now. Election Day. Election Day. August 1st, 1946. Election Day. It got off to a fiery start early on. So the morning broke to find voters lined up in the largest turnout in local history. Right? So there's actually going to be as many people as votes counted this time. Right. Actually going to be as many people. Exactly. Oh, maybe. Well, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. Right. Uh, and approximately 300 of Manfield's. You're going to need a bigger box. Special deputies uh, guarding the polling stations. And it gets off really well right at 930 a.m. All right. Polls are open. Let's do this. 930. Polls open. Walter Ellis, the GI rep legally stationed at the first precinct courthouse he is arrested and jailed oh. for protesting irregularities. 9.30 oh. in the morning. Oh, polls were open for probably a half hour, I'm guessing. Yeah, right about half an hour. <laughs> and they already have arrested one of the poll watchers. From the opposing from party. From the opposing party. So That's not suspicious at all. This starts out, and so the, the GIs uh, gather at the, the office of their campaign manager, Jim Buttram who had been tasked with collecting reports of election fraud. Must have been fun for him. Oh, yeah. So... 9.30. They, they, <laughs> they show up at his campaign, or at his, his office, and, and uh, he initially, like, refuses to answer the door. <laughs> like, they're sitting there pounding on the door, and it, it takes him a bit, and he finally answers the door, like... Nope. <laughs> just absolutely, completely crestfallen... And they immediately know this is not going well. So he takes them into his office and he shows them copies of two telegrams dated July 22nd. So what would that be a week before? About? A week and a half-ish. A week and a half-ish before? Yeah. Uh, one of them is to Governor Jim McCord of Nashville. Oh. The other is to Attorney General Tom Clark in Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. So they're going to get some... Right, so the so they, they send these telegrams, government. both of them requesting aid to ensure a fair election, and they neither to the, one of them was answered. None of, oh. It none came of to nothing. Nothing okay. happened. Oh. They were ignored. Oh, they were probably busy. Yeah, they, you know, they had other elections they, to, to watch, uh, you know, yeah. or rig, whatever. So... <laughs> It's at this, this point in the afternoon, Otto Kennedy, a political advisor for the veterans, uh, arrives with news that armed guards had been placed at each precinct in preparation for the 4 o'clock p.m. poll closing. So on top of the <laughs> sheriff's and deputy or sheriff's deputies that had already been placed across the county in all these precincts, there's now more additional armed guards oh, at so all these places. No. They're, they're just there to protect the box. They're not there to intimidate voters. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Right. All right. So, so after this news, the group decides it was time for an armed mobilization, and they disperse to go get their weapons. Oh. 
Yeah. So this is this is bad news. This is this uh, is bad news. This is. I just I don't even know how to explain this one as far as <laughs> how and, bad. And remember, this actually remember, is. This isn't a rash decision by the uh, uh, GIs. No. This is ten this years. Is, this, this started is, before World War II started. So yeah. they knew these guys beforehand. And and they're still there and they're doing ish still. It's and been it's 10 getting progressively years. worse and they're obviously trying to steal this election. They've obviously they have petitioned government leaders from local and, to state to federal government leaders to get help and nothing. Silence. Nothing. So now they have to revert back to and their rights under the Constitution. The real spark that sets off the powder keg actually happens while they're having this meeting. Um, before they go and get their guns, but they don't hear about it until, or most of them don't hear about it until after. So around 3 o'clock p.m., uh, an elderly black man by the name of Tom Gillespie enters the 11th precinct to cast his vote. Stationed at this precinct was a man named Windy Wise. He was a guard for Contral. Windy denied Tom his right to vote and yelled racial slurs at him. Oh, that's nice of him. Yeah, when Tom persisted trying to still get in and give his vote because he's a good voting man and it's his right to vote, and that's literally what he said was it's it's my right and I'm exercising my right to vote. And Wendy struck him with a pair of metal knuckles. Oh. And then as uh, as Tom dropped his ballot and tried to flee from the building, Wendy shot him in the back. Like the coward he is. Yes. So <laughs> the gunshots of course draw a crowd. And, and the 11th Precinct polling station is located in the Waterworks uh, building. And it draws this big crowd. And a few minutes later, Sheriff Mansfield pulls up in his, uh, his cop car and uh, posts four guards at the, the Waterworks, oh, so closes he, the precinct to voting. So he's there to fix, straighten out the situation. Yeah, yeah, of course. So he posts four guards, closes the precinct to voting, and arrests Gillespie. The, Oh, and the, and hauls him off to jail. Not the deputy. Oh. No, hey, he arrests Gillespie, oh. and hauls him off to jail. So, it gets even better. Oh, in the oh, confusion yeah. following yeah. the shooting, Ed Vestal and Charles Scott, the two GI poll watchers, were arrested and held hostage inside the Elite 11th Precinct Waterworks by Wise and another deputy named Carl Neal. Oh, good. So, in this crowd outside. Um, as Wise and Neil and these other guards are left to watch the waterworks, uh, they've taken these two prisoners, and outside there's this big mob of people that are all really angry. And among this mob are four unarmed veterans. And uh, so they, the veterans approach the waterworks, and it, it makes Windy and Neil a little... Uh, Little antsy, Feeling so they're a little outnumbered. Yes, yeah, so they're they're sitting there looking out the window at this crowd with these four veterans standing in the front of it, and uh, in a feat of amazingness, Ed and Charles dove through a window. 
escaping into the safety of the crowd. <laughs> Almost as if they dealt with worse people than these deputies before. Right? So it, when, when Wise sees them dive through the window, he steps out and starts menacing the crowd with his pistol. And the, the veterans in the crowd, unarmed, tried to bum rush him. <laughs> but they were stopped. They were pulled back to safety by the crowd who didn't want them to get shot. So, so then they, they turn around and say, you know, let's go get our guns. And they, they turn and they leave and go to SNK, which is, is where uh, their campaign manager's office is at. So shortly afterwards, Chief Deputy Bo Dunn arrives to take the ballot box. When Wise told him about what had happened with the GIs, he orders two men to go down to GI headquarters to arrest to the apologize. GIs there. Oh, Yeah, no, no, to arrest them. Oh. He's, he's sending them to arrest them. He then took the rest of the men with him back to the jail. So he sends two to go arrest the GIs, takes four to the jail. Not to jail, but to the jail yeah. to count the ballots right, illegally. Right. Other deputies um, back to jail. Shockingly, when the two huh. deputies arrived to arrest the GIs, they were disarmed and taken hostage. Oh, they didn't give them cookies. No, they didn't give them cookies. They, oh. they, uh, they took them hostage. Oh. And uh, <laughs> as a crowd gathered outside of the GI headquarters, three more deputies were sent uh, and up. arrived, weapons drawn, to arrest the disobedient GIs. Cavalry. Yes, the cavalry has arrived, and they were quickly disarmed, beaten, and taken hostage. Oh, that didn't work. Yeah, oh. uh, um, <laughs> and and I saw a couple of conflicting things here. So uh, yeah. one of the things I read said that it was just the two and the three, and then another one said that there were two more that showed up in the crowd that were also beaten and taken hostage oh. for a total of seven, um, seven hostages. So somewhere in the neighborhood of at least two. Yes. <laughs> so... At this point, the crowd and even some of the veterans are, are calling for blood and they, they want to just kill these deputies. And uh, Otto, at this point, is like, I'm not really comfortable with this. So he bails uh, and just just leaves him. He's like, I'm not going to be a part of this and, and walks out. Um, so the veterans eventually get it under control. They say, no, we're not going to do that. Not going to just kill these guys. So instead, they oh. drag all seven of the hostages out to the woods about 10 miles outside of town, beat them senseless, and then shackle them to the trees. And I assume they probably smear them with, with honey and, and tell them to be careful of the bears as they, you know, heavyweight style, just leave them in the woods. <laughs> smear them with honey. <laughs> there are no bears in these woods. There's no bears here. Help me! <laughs> <laughs> you kind child, please help me. <laughs> so around this time, about 345, across from the jail at the Dixie Cafe, which had been established as the 12th precinct polling place, Minis Wel Wilburn, uh, who you will remember is the deputy that... Uh, <laughs> Uh, shot was uh, deputized the guy that shot uh, the sailor earlier. Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, anyway, so Minnis Wilburn gets in an altercation and arrests two GIs, Bob Harrell and Leslie Dooley, after they tried to intervene when, get this, uh -huh. 
he allowed an underage woman that was not on the voter registration and had no poll tax receipt. So what you're saying is the GIs didn't want the women to vote. No, no, they didn't want the unregistered and uneligible people to vote. Who is because she was a woman. She was, but the woman doesn't disqualify her. It was the fact that she was was too young and not on the voter registration and didn't have a poll tax receipt. So just to clarify, for those of you that don't know, a poll tax is a tax as a fixed sum on every liable individual. So in other words, it's the government saying, pay me for allowing you to live, peasant. Papers, please. And it it was required by Tennessee at the time to cast a vote. Papers, please. Papers, please. Papers, please. Um, I mean, on one hand, you you know the person is allowed to vote because they have that. On the other hand, it's wrong. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. So, as Wilburn takes the ballot and reaches to deposit it, Harold grabbed his wrist and Wilburn slapped him across the head <laughs> with a blackjack. And then kicked him in the face as he fell to the floor. Blackjack, billy club, nightstick, yep. whatever you want to call it. And then he closed the precinct, ordered Hornsby Alley blocked at both ends, and with a procession of guards, crossed the lawn to the jail with the ballot box and the GIs as captives. Oh, they have more captives. Nice. Yeah. So by six o'clock that night, it seemed like this was pretty much over. The GI headquarters was deserted and unhappy crowd moved quietly along the streets. Another election had been stolen and nothing could be done. Wait, this is supposed to be a happy ending. What, yeah, that's pretty much how it ends. Before? That was They stole what? the election. What? and Oh, but there's another page here. Oh, oh wait. Hold oh, on. Oh, my oh, goodness. I got... This. Actually, there's another like three pages here. We got ahead of ourselves. <laughs> we got a little ahead of ourselves. So... But uh, as, as DeRose puts it at this time, he says, a line had been crossed. For nearly 10 years, the deputies had done whatever they wanted to whomever they wanted. What had been the consequence? People complained. They wrote letters. A handful of henchmen had some small legal difficulties. Only one had seen the inside of a jail. Now seven deputies had been roughed up and robbed and were being held prisoner. More justice had been meted out in those frantic minutes than in the previous 10 years. (laughs) Bill and the other GIs treated the deputies to a drive along the country roads of McMinn. They marched the captives into the woods, made them take off their clothes, and tied them to the trees. Some got whipped with a hickory stick. The GIs headed back to town, leaving the deputies behind. Back in town, the GIs were adrift unsure of what their next course of action should be. But Bill White, once again, steps forward and rallies the troops. And this is what he said to him. Well, here you are. After three or four years of fighting for your country, you survived it all. You came back. What did you come back to? A free country? You come back to Athens, Tennessee in McMinn County. It's run by a bunch of outlaws. They've got hired gunmen all over this county right now at this minute. What for? One purpose. To scare you so bad you won't dare stand up for the rights you've been bleeding and dying for. Some of your mothers and some of your sisters are afraid to walk down the streets to the polling places. 
Lots of men, too, because they know what happens. A car drives by in the night and shoots out your windows. If that doesn't scare you enough, they'll set fire to your house and your barn. They'll beat up members of your family and put them in jail for no reason. Is that the kind of freedom you were supposed to be fighting for? Do you know what your rights are supposed to be? How many rights have you got left? None. Not even the right to vote in a free election. When you lose that, you've lost everything. And you are damned well going to lose it unless you fight. And fight the only way they understand. Fire with fire. We've got to make this an honest election because we promised the people that if they voted, it would be an honest election. And it's going to be. But only if we see that it is. We're going to have to run these organized criminals out of town, and we can do it if we stick together. Are you afraid of them? Why? I could take a banana stalk and run every one of these pot-bellied draft dodgers across Depot Hill. Get the hell out of here and get something to shoot with. Come back as fast as you can. That gives me goosebumps. I know, right? Whoo. Whoo. So. Where's where's the fight? Where's the fight? (sighs) As he finishes this speech, the, the, the members of his militia and the other GIs gathered around disperse to go find themselves some weapons, and White decides he's going to go get himself some guns. So he sends two GIs to go get a truck with a few of the other veterans, maybe a dozen or so. He heads over to the National Guard Armory. <laughs> I know where the guns are. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he knows where the guns are. So in a 1969 interview, he actually, he actually describes this. He says uh, he broke down the armory doors and took all the rifles, two Thompson submachine guns, and all the ammunition we could carry, loaded it up in the two-ton truck, and went back to GI headquarters and passed out 70 high-powered rifles and two bandoliers of ammunition with each one. <laughs> oh. Be still my heart. That's a lot of hot sixes. That's a, that's a lot of hot six. <laughs> Two <laughs> bandoliers per gun? 70 Jeez. guns? <sighs> so by 9 p.m., Paul Cantrell, Pat Mansfield, State, Pre- State Representative George Woods, who was also a member of the Election Commission, and about 50 deputies were locked inside the jail and going through the ballot boxes. Illegally, I might add. The presence of Mansfield and Woods meant that a majority of the election commission was on hand. How convenient. So the tallies could be certified and validated on the spot, though technically they're supposed to be counted by a third party. That is so More deputies were still barricaded in the courthouse, but along the streets, none were to be seen. If the control forces had been a bit more wary, they might have spotted some shadows slipping up the embankment directly across the street from the jail. If they didn't trust their rig polling, they would have but known But they person. did not notice these things happening. <laughs> so, as this kind of carries on, the GIs set themselves up, and uh, it, it's really important to kind of know some of the motivation behind this. So, DeRose noted that White had joined the Marines just steps away at the the old post office, which was between him and the jail. And he he says he had sworn to defend America against all her enemies, and he meant to satisfy his vow. 
Later, White would explain that if it was worth going over there and risking your life laying it down, it was worth it here too. So we decided to fight. So the GIs set out, ready for action. They formed a line on a hillside across from the jail and demanded that the machine men bring out the ballot boxes. From the jail, someone called, You're going to have to come get them. So the GIs answered that's exactly what they would do. <laughs> someone inside the law shout or someone inside the jail shouted, Why don't you call the law? And one of the GIs retorted, There ain't no damn law in McMinn County. Oof. Oof. So this is where things opinions kind of differ as to exactly how this went down. But White says that he was the one to call it out. He said, uh, would you damn bastards bring these damn ballot boxes out here or we are going to set siege against the jail and blow it down. Moments later, the night exploded in automatic weapons, fire punctuated by shotgun blasts. And White claims that he fired the first shot. The shot heard around <laughs> McMinn County. <laughs> Other sources claim that it was a shotgun blast from inside the jail that actually set everything off. But White still says he shot first. Of course and he did. He's then <laughs> everybody started shooting. So a deputy runs for the jail and White says, I shot him. He willed and fell inside, the j- inside of the jail. Bullets ricocheted up and down White Street. I shot a second man. His leg flew out from <laughs> under him. He crawled under a car. <laughs> so this continues on for hours. The jail bombarded by the veterans and Contral and his men trying to return fire, but the veterans had the high ground, so, <laughs> you know, it's one of those and Anakin ammo. versus Obi-Wan things. Yeah. And they had ammo. Oh, yeah, there's that. Lots they they had lots of ammo. So, uh, Contral and his accomplices, secure behind the red brick walls, refused to surrender. In the streets, the veterans further hemmed in the crossfire, firing from behind walls and parked cars. The soldiers shot out the transformer that supplied the jail. (laughs) No power for you. (laughs) Leaving the deputies not only low on ammo, but with the difficult task of groping each other around trying to load guns in the dark. Groping each other. I I don't think that's what they did. (laughs) Wait. Anyway, meanwhile... A group of Monroe and Polk County co- uh, deputies. So two different counties here. The deputies from these two different counties, which were all part of part of this machine of Crump's machine, tore through the town, searching for Knox Henry, who was the GI candidate, planning to murder him. Oh, thereby ensuring that control would win. Because <laughs> if if your candidate is dead, you you can't win. Yeah, don't have just, to stuff the ballot. Boxes don't have to stuff the ballot boxes if for. we just kill your candidate. <laughs> so this carries on for a while, and as the battle drags past midnight, the GIs begin to have some uneasy second thoughts. See, they knew they had violated local, state, and federal laws. And if Cantrell wasn't routed before his rescuers arrived, they might spend the rest of their lives in prison. So as this is going on, rumors start flying around 
Uh, National Guard is on the way. The state troopers are here. Birch Biggs and his gang are coming. Biggs was the, the one that ran Polk County. Uh, he was even worse than Control was. <laughs> he thought Control was better. Seriously. So the veterans are eager to end the battle. And some of them made Molotov cocktails, tried to light the place on fire. Eventually, they just went to the county supply house and got some dynamite. <laughs> so, so the Molotov cocktail—if the explosives they're, don't they're, work, get the real ones, right? So they're they're throwing throwing Molotov cocktails and stuff, and and it's not working at all. So around two thirty in the morning, the dynamite finally arrives. But about this time, an ambulance pulls up. Uh, around the north side of the jail. So the veterans and even the men in the jail stop shooting for a bit. It's like, oh, there's an ambulance. They're here to get wounded men. We'll just let it go for a second. Right? Yeah. It's nice. This sounds, this sounds you know, this rules yeah. of engagement. You got to be polite when people are removing wounded. It's fine. Yeah. Right? And everyone always plays by the rules. But as the ambulance pulls up, two men run out of the jail and jump in, and the ambulance takes off, speeding north out of town. But the hospital's the other way. Yeah. Yeah, the hospital was the other way. Oh. Uh, It wasn't wounded people that jumped in. Uh, Obviously, because if you're wounded, I assume that you're not running and jumping into an ambulance and then speeding out of town. It was actually Paul Contrell and Pat Mansfield who abandoned their men in the jail and just ran. Like a good captain of their ship, they bailed. (laughs) (laughs) Like a good captain, get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So at 2.48, the first stick of dynamite was tossed toward the jail, and it landed... Under Bo Dunn's cruiser. Good. So the explosion flips the vehicle over on its top, leaving its wheels spinning. And three more bundles of dynamite are thrown almost at the same time. One landed on the jail porch roof, another under Mansfield's car, and the third hit the jail wall and then just dropped. And so the explosions rattled windows throughout town, leaves falling from trees, debris scattering for blocks, and the jailhouse porch decided to jump off of its foundation. I mean, they're throwing dynamite. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a little, little uh, over the top. I but, know these uh, guys were trained it's... to throw frag grenades, but... <laughs> So it's at this point that the deputies barricaded in the courthouse a block away decide to surrender. (laughs) Not even involved in this. (laughs) See what you're doing there. And they're like, I'm out. I'm out. I give up. Clearly you have us outgunned. I I give up. I give up. (laughs) Uh and uh, also, the, the jail's defenders staggered out of their ruined stronghold and handed the pilot boxes over to the veterans. <laughs> so, with the Contra forces conquered, 10 years of suppressed rage exploded. <laughs> the townspeople, in a vicious mob, just set on the deputies. And they would have killed all of them, but the veterans intervened and were like, no, 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 no. hey, 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 sit, sit, no, bad. (laughs) 
Uh, unfortunately, they weren't quite quick enough. They did not manage to save Menace Wilburn, Oof. who had his throat slit. Mm. I mean... Uh, and a couple of them were beaten senseless. One of them got shot in the jaw. You know, a couple little things like that. Windy Wise was... Windy Wise was kicked and beaten senseless. Good. He deserved it. So the GIs cleared the jail of the rioters, locked up their prisoners for the night. And that's, that's it's pretty much the end of it. It, it goes to show that you can make a difference if you really feel like fighting for it. But there's the aftermath. The aftermath. So August 11th, so this is 10 days later, uh, five GIs were elected to office in McMinn County, and they announced that they would return to the county all fees in excess of $5,000. Elsewhere in Tennessee, E.H. Crump and his machine were finally on the way out with the election of Governor Gordon Browning and a young United States senator by the name of Estes Kofifi. Kefavr. It's K-E-F-A-U-V-E-R. Kefavr. 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 Estes Kefavr. Yes. For... For a full year afterward, the national press seized upon the most insignificant news from Athens as evidence of the veterans' lawlessness. <laughs> there was, indeed, remarkably little criminal prosecution in the wake of that violent night. <laughs> Only one man had charges brought against him. Do you know who? Uh, it had to be one of the veterans. because. Oh, whole, no, no, oh, no. Oh. It, it was Windy Wise, the guy that shot the old black farmer, Tom Gillespie. Good. Yeah, he drew a sentence of one to three years. Not enough. Not enough. Though I assume Gillespie actually survived. I haven't seen anything that said that he died from those wounds. So, attempted murder? Still think it deserves more than that. Yeah. But, as for the larger results of the Athens Rebellion, the GIs universally hailed the return of the independent vote to the community and the election of fine people to lead it. The national press continued to show interest in what had happened, the best, if incomplete, account of it at the time was a Harper's article by Theodore White, if you want to look that up. Okay. Uh, Paul Cantrell, after seeking temporary asylum in Chattanooga, returned to Etowa and continued to operate the bank there with his brothers. They are all dead now, as is Jim Buttram. Otto Kennedy still lives in Athens, at least as of the writing of when I, or of the, the thing that I got most of my information from, which was several years ago, so not sure if he's still around. <laughs> but uh, Pat Mansfield returned secretly to Athens on August 8th, 1946 to resign his membership on the election commission. He met with Otto Kennedy for two hours, apparently with no ill feeling on either side, and then announced, I'm through with politics for good. It'll sure mess you up sometimes. I'm going back to railroading. Yeah, that, that wasn't corrupt. Right. <laughs> As for the man behind the curtain, Boss Crump made the cover of Time magazine in 1946 oh. and was described Good for him. as the most absolute political boss in the United States. Hmm. In 1947, Boss Crump did not allow the Freedom Train to stop in Memphis. Oh. And you know what the Freedom Train is? Um, 
train full of freedom. It was a train full of freedom. Naturally. Actually, it really was <laughs> a train full of freedom because it was the train that was sent across the country with the original copies of the Declaration of Independence and the co- uh, Constitution. It was a mobile museum, basically. Basically, yeah. So Traveling museum. He, there you go. he didn't allow it to stop in Memphis because he didn't want integrated crowds to view its precious original copies of the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. At this point, the joke was no longer funny. Yeah. The racism of this decision was likened to the policies of Hitler by some black preachers, Oof. and progressive Memphians were finally ready for a change. Although he was still influential in Memphis politics until his death in 1954, Crump lost a lot of his power in around this time, and then even more in 1948 when he opposed the election of Harry Truman as president. And... and for another racist reason. He had supported the state's rights party who were opposed to Truman's civil rights laws, which would have abolished the poll tax and increased penalties against lynching. Oh yeah. So this was the man who ran the democratic party in the South between 1910 and 1954. So, so there you go. So his, his coalition after this, totally fell apart because the African-Americans left him. He was not Why? able to put the coalition back together at all before he died. He died on October 16th, 1954, was buried in Memphis Elmwood Cemetery. He had his headstone installed before his death, and there's a legend that says he would bring a picnic blanket and eat lunch admiring his headstone. I believe it. I believe it, too. <laughs> How self-absorbed he is with power. Right? So, and that, that was the funny thing is he really was completely absorbed with the power mm-hmm. to the point where before he died, he actually discarded some of his political machine and some of the different practices that he he started doing because he knew that clever politicians will ultimately give the people the government that they want. And all he wanted was power, not money. So with the power he had he never needed to steal a single cent i mean he'd steal an election but he he wouldn't steal a nickel oh at least he's an honorable thief i guess not really no no not not really not not really but i mean arguably he did have a sincere love for memphis and for the people of memphis if they agreed with him (laughs) if they agreed with him I mean, under him, they got corruption and violence and, you know, all those awful things. They also got an efficient government service, law and order, but some lower taxes, and a clean, quiet, and beautiful city in Memphis. Memphis, where he lived. Where he lived. So, real question is, was the trade-off worth it? Yeah, that's it. That's the Battle of Athens. Yeah, pretty much. From uh, before the beginning to a little bit after the end. With the man behind it all. Um, really cool story. And uh, I think everyone should know at least the gist of it. Because especially right now, like I mentioned earlier, 
historically, this is some crazy times we're in where they're talking about election this, fraud that, vote this, mail in that. And this story has all of that already happening. History does not repeat itself. It rhymes. And that's why we like... I would say it not only repeats itself, it also rhymes. <laughs> it's uh, it's like a book. It is. It is indeed. Just like that one. Oh, you magnificent bastard, I read your book! Just like that. Just like that um, one. Yeah, everything you see, Democrat or Republican, whatever, they all use the same playbook. Pretty much. Um, there are the good within each, each side of political spectrumness, but there's also people like Boss Crump that ruin everything for everyone. And if you don't pay attention to history, if you don't learn from the things that have gone before, then it'll just keep happening. It'll keep on happening. So... And this has been a slice of history for you, my friends. And until the next slice, we'll catch you later. Bye.